Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and welcome to The Money Movement, a show where we explore and chronicle the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. Why this show right now? We're at an inflection point in the adoption of this technology. The current global macro context is driving radical change in business models, in this accelerated drive to digitalization, new rules of the road for how we transact commerce, and there's just so much to figure out. Now, for the vast majority of business leaders in the world today, the technology and business opportunity presented by digital currency and blockchains have been elusive, perceived as either highly experimental or just outright speculative. The money movement aims to connect the dots and bring more people and more leaders along into the world that's happening now that we're building together. As many know, Bitcoin was launched in the ashes of the Great Recession. And for the past 10 plus years, the ideas behind it have exploded onto the scene. Over these years, an incredible global movement has been building, a movement of tens of thousands of companies, tens of millions of people, and increasingly a movement that reaches the highest levels of global power. It now seems clear that there is a chance to reshape and rebuild the very building blocks of society and the economy and our relationship with money and economic activity. And now the global pandemic is driving intense acceleration of this change. All of the talk from business leaders around the world is around how to become more digital more quickly. It's about how to become more resilient in the face of shifting global relationships. And without a doubt, it's also about dealing with exploding amounts of risk all around us. Not only health risks, but fundamental risks in the economy, in currencies, and very likely in the banking sector itself. And these systemic financial risks are cascading into how every firm thinks about counterparty risks, who's good for their money, and which money is any good. Here on The Money Movement, we want to explore these issues with thought leaders, business leaders, economic leaders, startups and entrepreneurs, and smart investors who are fueling this movement and can provide perspective on the ideas that matter. Look, there's been a lot of navel gazing in the crypto and blockchain world, but now's the time for bringing this out into the mainstream. I wanna challenge our guests to connect the dots to the real issues and real world implications of this technology. But at the same time, this was a movement filled with visionaries who are imagining a radically different world. And we want to hear from them and help them inspire us all with what's possible. Indeed, uh, what may even be inevitable. So coming up, my first guest is going to be uh, Michael Novogratz. And I'm really excited uh, to welcome a guest who has seen and watched global macro issues for decades, starting at Goldman Sachs, uh, then at Fortress Investment Group, and for the past several years uh, has been leading Galaxy uh, Digital Assets. Uh, very excited uh, to have you here, Mike. Welcome, Mike. Jeremy, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us today. Good day to be a crypto holder. It, it is uh, an exciting time. I'm really happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, hey, look, I want to start with uh, a bit of discussion about what's happening in this broader global macro environment. You know, what's happening, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. Stepping out of crypto for a moment, what are you seeing? Well, listen, happening? you know, pre-corona, um, 
the U.S. was running a 5% fiscal deficit. And that's, if you believe Trump, with the greatest economy of all time. Uh, that was insane. So I worked at the White House in 1984 in the Office of Management and Budget, and Dave Stockton was there. And that was when we first had to say the twin deficits. And it was a crisis that the U.S. was running a 5% fiscal deficit. Uh, fast forward, we're running a 5% fiscal deficit when we're at full employment. Made right. no sense. So now we hit the single greatest economic collapse in history, literally. And the response probably correctly had to be, we got to throw a lot of uh, ammunition at this, at this fire. And so we are going to run, I don't know, 20, 25% fiscal deficits, unheard of. Right. Even the great financial crisis, we got to like 12. Uh, and just as importantly, the, the Federal Reserve is monetizing all. They are buying everything um, at a pace that makes the QE1, QE2 era look very, very tame. And so you've got the monetization of debt. Uh, at the same time, Japan is running a 25% you know, fiscal stimulus. Uh, again, unheard of. I mean, it's happening all around the world. I mean, the US is doing a lot, but it, it's sort of no one can escape this. So we have yes. this, this kind of monetization happening everywhere. And so you know, when you debase, when you just keep printing currencies and you've got M2 growing faster than the, 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 the rate of the economy, right? The, the, that money becomes worthless versus something. Right. And so things are going to get, you know, the classic, the classic hedge to that had been gold. Right. Uh, but there are other, you know, yield curves should get very steep because why would I want to lend someone money in 30 years at 1% um, when they're, when they're just printing it like crazy? One of the things like everyone wants to have a crystal ball here. And, and, you know, I think a lot of us are thinking about maybe the next two or three years and, you know, we know there's going to be aftershocks from this initial shock. Um, it seems like that's going to be the case. You know, and I guess the, the the higher level question is, you know, how will all of these systemic shocks cascade and ricochet across each other uh, around the world? Well, you, you have to think that the first impetus is a deflationary, you know, nuclear bomb. Like, boom, 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 right? right? Because you know, we've got 25% unemployment coming. Right now, what's really interesting in the US, it doesn't feel so bad because disposable income is actually higher than it was last year because the federal, you know, the unemployment insurance is $600 a week higher than it normally is. And so if you're on unemployment insurance, you're making $25 an hour or most people in jobs at Walmarts and in fast food restaurants make $13. Right. We're gonna double. And so we've got a lot of income still because the government's just giving it away. Um, but that ends in July, and all of a sudden, purchasing power goes down, and we'll have a deflation, first impulse. When you have so much money being put on the, on the, on the table, though, kind of printing out this money, and it's different than in 08. So in 08, you had this rise of the Tea Party that said, enough, 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 we're not going to allow this to go on forever. You don't have that same politics there. Anymore. All of a sudden, now we have... This corona has exposed the rich-poor gap, right? This inequality gap. That's the story right now. It's not a Tea Party story. It's an AOC story. I'd love to buy calls on AOC. Uh, the populist wave is coming. Uh, that is a spending wave, not a saving wave. Right. And so you're going to have a deflation followed by an inflation. The question is, are markets looking ahead? 
We'll go. I, I, I guess as you look at the different economies around the world, I think here in the U.S., it's you know we're obviously seeing what's happening here, and you look at these different economies around the world, and maybe talking a little bit about currencies specifically. Um, you know, different sovereign currencies. Uh, you know, dramatic things happening there, and sort of you know. So currencies are really tricky because they're all relative games, right? And so, I bought a bunch of calls on. The Chinese currency, I, I, I'm sorry, dollar calls or puts on the Chinese currency yesterday, partly because I see China being the scapegoat for the U.S. The, the Republican Senate, the Republican president's plan is it's China's fault. They started this. They knew about it. And it's going to be China bashing at a, at a level we haven't heard before. Uh, and so I think bad for the Chinese currency. Um, people are going to try to move supply chains out of China. Right. Uh, bad for the bad for the, the world, quite frankly, but I think it's going to happen. Emerging market currencies also, I think, are shit out of luck in that, you know, the world borrowed in dollars for the last, you know, 30 years as globalization happened, more borrowing in dollars, more borrowing in dollars. And now when you're deleveraging, and this is a big deleveraging, you need to buy the dollars to pay them back. And so places like Turkey and Lebanon, and one of the great pluses for crypto is, you know, unfortunately, is as those emerging market currencies become less stable, and you know, you saw it, you know, you saw it in Venezuela and and, and uh, Zimbabwe in the past, but now Lebanon this year, Iran, Turkey, cascading right. uh, everywhere. It so, looks like it's going to six, and if it goes past six, who knows where it goes? Right. So th this is this drive to dollars, right? And and now, you know, coming coming into this digital currency realm, we're we're also seeing in particular this drive to digital dollars, such as Tether, such as U.S. dollar coins, so-called stable coins. You know, what do you think is driving the surge in circulation and usage of stable coins? You know, clearly some of this global macro is is fueling this. Um, would love to just hear, you know, hear, hear this connection between what's happening in the world of sovereign, sovereign currencies, global macro, and and this, you know, rapid growth in. Now, like, I give you a two side story because I look, you know, you look at the growth of Tether, which has been explosive, and Tether for the most part it was a Asian uh, phenomenon, Chinese not wanting to pay taxes, moving money around, and that accelerates when you have uncertainty and, you know, chaos. And that's what we have. And so I think there's one part of that, which is, hey, believe it or not, people trust Tether. Uh, it, it, you know, it is standing the test of time. And there was lots of debate about it early. And, you know, maybe there should, still should be some debate about it, but it's, it's become trusted. And so people still see themselves and value their net worth in dollars, right? There are very few real crypto complete, you know, junkies. Uh, that see their measure their net worth in Bitcoin or an ether right. or something else, right? So we measure their worth in dollars. So dollar the dollar will stay the dominant player in the world as a measure of wealth for a long time, uh, unless something really bad happens. Um, and so I I think even you know like Libra was going to plan to do a dollar stable coin or the euro stable coin. Uh, there are five different stable coins. Right. My hunch is when they do that, the dollar stable coin will dominate. Because all the different places will want to buy dollars, and 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 your stablecoin, I think, is growing. Same right. reason. Seventy-five percent growth in in six weeks. It's been the the, the second reason I think stablecoins are growing is, you know, the Microsoft CEO said we did two years of 
innovation in two months, right? The, the shift to digitalization in this COVID thing is happening at lightning speed. From the fear of germs on your paper money to the broader scheme of just, we're gonna digitalize everything. I mean, this, we can do a conference call on Zoom. I never did Zoom. And now I do it six times a day. And so that is accelerating, you know, digitalization of dollars. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're gonna see that wildly accelerate. We, uh, we certainly agree. And we're gonna be talking about that a lot uh, on the money movement. Um, obviously, I can't leave this interview, Mike, uh, without a price prediction. Price of Bitcoin, uh, end of 2020, price of Bitcoin a year from now. Yeah, I think something you know really significant is happening. Um, we always talk about on-ramps into Bitcoin and, and who are the new buyers? Well, I tell you, macro hedge funds are now buying Bitcoin as a macro investment. I just read Paul Tudor Jones's investment letter for this month and Bitcoin's all over it and Bitcoin as a hedge inflation hedge. So that's kind of the first major hedge fund from a, you know, from a legend in the hedge fund industry, not buying it PA, but buying it in the fund. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a, a significant shift. And so we're seeing that in our business, more and more people coming in. Uh, there are more and more rails going on. So I think, listen, I think Bitcoin 20,000 at the end of the year, uh, I think we'll, we'll probably pause a little. You know, you're going to have the, the happening. And you'll probably have a buy the rumor, sell the fact for a few days and you take right back off. I think 14,000 first target, 20,000 end of the year. Uh, but I think we're starting a four to five year bull market in this. The last thing dramatic, the, the, the macro themes here, as we, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, throughout this conversation are intensifying, um, you know, it, it's sort of made for, uh, made for crypto, made for these kinds of uh, digital assets, made for stable coins. Um, really exciting. Hey, look, Mike. Um, I'll leave you one last thought because I think it's, it's important. So I lived in Asia in 93 to 2000 and the Asian financial crisis was the first time I saw markets just break, break apart. And, you know, what I've learned through that crisis, the OA crisis, is when we have these wild paradigm shifts, shit happens that you could never expect. Right. So the possibility and the probability of really weird outcomes changes immensely. Will U.S. rates trade negative? They started to today. Uh, could they, you know, it used to be with swap spreads, ever, swap spreads ever trade negative, then they traded negative 90 basis points. And so... Will the U.S. dollar lose its reserve status? Oh, tiny, tiny delta. Uh, right. Probabilities are changing. And so I want investors to wake up to the fact that the old rules might not exist. Not, I'm not saying they won't, uh, but the probability that, that, and so crypto, even as just a hedge to all that, becomes a much more compelling story. A lot of structural stuff. Mike, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. And you know, look forward to having you again as well. Awesome. Take care. Take care, Mike. Certainly interesting times. And uh, the global macro view is something that we're going to be coming back to a lot on the show. Um, but a, a big thing we're going to explore in the money movement is the idea, and related to what we just talked about, that we're building a new architecture for the global economy. And that that architecture is being built on blockchains and digital currency. Now, the global economy is built on trust. And the blockchain is a new architecture for that trust. And uh, to help us explore this, 
I'm excited uh, to welcome our next guest, Kevin Warbach, Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School and author of The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. Welcome, Kevin. It's so nice to see you. You too. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. Excellent. Um, well, I uh, really appreciate you joining the show. Um, you know, I think we, we, first, we first met over 20 years ago, um, and I know you and I were both around and active in some of the formation of the early internet. Um, maybe you could just start, just talk for a minute about your time leading tech policy at the FCC as this new decentralized permissionless open network dubbed the internet uh, was emerging. So I graduated from law school in 1994 and I wanted to do internet law and um, it didn't exist. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I literally looked around uh, for a job because I was convinced that the internet was this unbelievably transformative technology. Uh, it had impacts for law, but it was going to just change the world. And that's where I wanted to be. Um, and, you know, there were a few startups out there. There was, you know, the Netscape browser had just gotten uh, launched. Um, uh, but there were not a lot of places to do it. And it turned out that the Federal Communications Commission was hiring uh, uh, law students that year. And so I went to the FCC and I said, I want to do internet policy. Um, they looked at me kind of cross-eyed and they said, okay, well, you know, Al Gore in the White House keeps talking about this information superhighway thing. And so we, we should probably have some people looking at these issues. Um, and so that um, turned out to be uh, dumb luck uh, and dumb luck of timing. Uh, that I got in on the ground floor and became um, counsel for new technology policy. I ran internet right. policy at the FCC and the Clinton administration was part of the interagency working group on e-commerce policy that developed the overall U.S. approach to internet. Um, and back then, again, my community, the people I talked to, what I saw, what I was doing was this was the future. This is how we were going to communicate. It's how we we're going to transact. Um, and everything was going to go to internet technology. But at that time, that was really controversial. Um, right. I would talk with you know, AT&T and the big companies and they'd say, oh, no, 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 this is you know, just a fad. There were 10 million people on the internet then in the whole world, yeah. uh, of which I think seven or 8 million were on AOL. Um, you, no one in China could legally have a personal internet account when I got started. And we were convinced it was going to change the world and everyone was going to adopt it. And it turned out that happened. So. A lot of that colors my experience on technology policy and on blockchain going forward. And, and really, some uh, obviously a lot of amazing parallels, uh, the permissionless open infrastructure, these open protocols, things like that. I, I think just on, on the topic of blockchains, you know, I, I want to kick off this discussion a little bit with some definitions, some basic definitions and understanding. And one of the key things that we're trying to do here on the show is help bring more business leaders into this movement. And I think that just starts with understanding some of the basics. So maybe just take a minute for people, you know, why are public blockchains or blockchains that are open to anyone to use and accessible on the internet so powerful and disruptive? Because of trust. Um, trust is the foundation for all value, whatever you're talking about, whether it's a, a fiat currency or gold or a stock or anything. The reason it has some value is because of trust, because you think and you're confident that if you get the thing that you can go and turn around and give it to someone else and it still has value. And um, you know, I don't need to tell you, I don't need to tell the people listening in, we have a global crisis in trust right now. And this has been you know, reinforced by you know, survey after survey and academic research, trust in government, trust in corporations, trust in media, uh, trust in really all institutions is going away. 
So we need a mechanism that can um, allow for confidence about value. Trust is, I talk about in the book, it's the fusion of confidence and vulnerability. If, if you're, there's no vulnerability, if I've got a gun to your head, it's not trust. Trust has to have some risk, but it's the productive kind of risk. So how do we get to that state without being dependent upon central actors? Um, right. That is the potential of blockchain technology. Yeah, and and I think this, you know, a a public infrastructure similar, you know, to the early days of the internet, where anyone with a computer could join. The permissionless nature of that is is one of the things that makes it so powerful. And if we can have an architecture for, you know, contracts for transactions for money that is both open and permissionless, but also uh, something that we can all trust and rely upon. That is, you know, very fundamental um, and, and quite a big deal. I wanted to, you know, touch on this broader, you know, digitalization theme. Uh, Mike touched on this as well. Um, you know, we're, we're clearly we're seeing this being accelerated. Um, you know, public blockchains have the potential to play a massive role in that, you know, and this global economic crisis and this sort of pandemic new normal. How does, how do, you know, blockchains, these deeper issues of trust and digitalization, how, how are they going to be manifest? What do you see happening with those pieces coming together? Um, well, there's two things. One is um, anytime you have uh, a crisis, things blow up and there's a chance to build something new. Um, and some of that is just uh, a lot of the incumbents are not there anymore or they're not as powerful anymore. And some of that is people are willing to engage in some new thinking. Um, and so there's an opportunity to rethink. There's particularly an opportunity to rethink money. Uh, the idea that we are still using paper bills uh, in the United States seems kind of you know, odd uh, and um, antiquated now. So part of it is just that general change in thinking. Um, but part of it is that, again, there are challenges with the financial system that we've known about for a long time. Um, there are all the intermediaries and all the inefficiencies of that. And there's the, the problem that it's not fully programmable. It's not fully digital right. like our internet technology. Right. And so if uh, blockchain-based systems can realize that promise, and I keep saying if, because you know, the reality is um, these things, you can call something a blockchain and it can actually turn out to be very centralized or it can out, turn out to be something that's really useful for criminals. Um, you can also um, ignore the law. And, and my argument as a, as a legal scholar has always been, this is about trust. So we need systems that are consistent with regulation. Sure, there can be too much regulation, there can be bad regulation, um, but the idea that there should be a mechanism that prevents all the money from going to North Korea or to terrorists is, is not a, I don't think it should be a controversial notion. Right. We need to be able to do that in a way that allows for the decentralization. Right. I, I, it's an interesting connection to, to a related topic, which is, as you said, you're a legal scholar. You've worked on critical legal and policy issues. Um, and, and obviously, one of the things that you talk about in your book and which is, is really important is this concept or potential of, quote unquote, smart contracts. And, you know, um, in, in some ways, the, these layers of interaction that companies can have with each other or people can have with companies, mm -hmm. you know, what are these smart contracts? How might companies apply them to reduce risk, increase trust, and in this new pandemic, new normal, enable safer forms of global commerce? Um, right, so a smart contract is an agreement on a blockchain that's self-executed and self-enforced. 
Um, we have centuries and centuries of contract law. Contracts are the foundation of all um, business activity, all exchange. Um, uh, economists describe, they define a corporation as literally, quote, a nexus of contracts. So uh, you know, a contract serves many different purposes. It's not just uh, a legal formality. It enables trust. Um, and this, this insight goes back to, to the Scottish philosopher Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century. If I make an agreement with you, a contract, I trust you because I know if you try to cheat me, I can sue you in court. I can use the power of the state to enforce my private agreement. And that's why I'm going to do the deal. That's why I'm going to trust you because I hope that doesn't happen, but I know it can. Um, smart contracts are potentially importing that power into the blockchain world and allowing us to not just have um, assets that are value in and of themselves, right. but to make them truly programmable, yeah, to bring seeing... any of the kind of sophistication and logic that we can think of into this decentralized digital world. We're even seeing, and we're going to talk about in an upcoming episode, decentralized forms of jurisprudence, decentralized arbitration, uh, interesting things that are, are kind of backstops to the machine enforced uh, contracts as well. I know, um, I know you've recently taken an interest in stable coins and digital currencies backed by central bank money. Uh, we're convening uh, uh, some, some uh, you know, sessions around that. Just quick thoughts, you know, how might these be used in this new world of automated contracts in this new architecture? Yeah, well, I mean, you were the one who turned me on to this, uh, you know, with the work that you were doing with USDC and, and, and Center and so forth. But, you know, I, I tend to think about it as the convergence of the, the blockchain crypto world and the, the traditional financial world, that um, if we truly believe in the idea of money going fully digital and fully programmable, um, then you need to have some way to, to, for example, not deal with the risk of fluctuation of price that we have with uh, traditional cryptocurrencies. And you need to have some way, again, to, to have that confidence and that, that trust in what the value really is. So you know, it's, a, it's a facilitating step. It's a bridging step. Um, but you know, going back to where we started, you, you look at you know, the way the internet happened. You know, there were people going out and saying, OK, everything's going to change. We're just going to start over. And then there were people like you with Alaire who said, no, okay, we, you know, people develop applications. Let's come up with a way to develop internet applications right. and take the best of what we did traditionally with software development and the potential of having something be online and put them together. And, and in hindsight, that was the foundation for the revolution, really. Right. Um, and I think the same thing is going to be true now. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much, Kevin. It was really great to see you and uh, look forward to speaking uh, to you again very soon. You as well. Good luck with the podcast. Thanks, Kevin. So uh, a lot of important themes there, um, and we're going to continue to explore these in the coming weeks, including an upcoming episode focused on trust and risk in this new global economic crisis, as well as getting hands-on with real-world use cases for programmable money and smart contracts. So now uh, a theme running through all of this is the rise of stablecoins and their role as a building block for this new global economic architecture. Of course, this is near and dear to my heart, and I know is also a big theme on the mind of Kyle Samani, one of the smartest people in the crypto and blockchain world and co-founder of the prolific crypto fund, Multichain Capital. Welcome, Kyle. It's so nice to have you here on The Money Movement. Hey, Jeremy. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, maybe very quickly, just uh, you know, tell our viewers a little bit about Multichain Capital and the broader thesis behind the firm. Sure. Uh, Multi-Win Capital is an investment firm based in Austin, Texas. 
Uh, we are a thesis-driven firm and we invest in the crypto ecosystem. We run two funds, a hedge fund and a venture fund. Venture investing in the private side of the market and the hedge fund in the public side of the market. Um, and we've got 13 employees now in the US, uh, East Coast, West Coast, and Texas, and in China. Uh, we spend a lot of our time and energy doing deep diligence and research and, and developing high conviction theses and making concentrated bets. Some of the best uh, reads uh, in this space uh, come out of you guys. Really tremendous, tremendous thought leadership and, and the thesis work is phenomenal. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate it. I, I love writing and getting a chance to share it. And I'm really glad other people enjoy it. So glad to be here on the show. Excellent. So I want to dig into your stablecoin thesis. Um, maybe you could just start, you know, maybe describe at a high level what your thesis is about, you know, why these have emerged and where they're going and, and what role they're going to play in the broader global economic system. Yeah, so we've been watching the stablecoin ecosystem evolve now for about two or three years um, and has really just started to hit its stride recently uh, in, in a major way. Um, at the end of the day, like no one really, I, I find that the legacy system, whether it's Zeno or PayPal or Bank of America or JP Morgan, transferring dollars in those systems is archaic and painful. Um, transferring USDC or other stablecoins uh, on the Ethereum or other blockchains is a really just a magical experience. Um, fees are much lower, it's instant, it just everything works seamlessly. Uh, and so when I kind of take that and extend it to other just payment opportunities, it's very clear to us that the crypto payment rails are the payment rails of the future. Um, right. And, you know, putting dollar, you know, dollars on them in the form of USDC uh, just creates such a better user experience for all kinds of users. Right, I mean, it's it's amazing people. I, I, I think for people who haven't used these, you know, the ability to, you know, beam, so to speak, a dollar at the speed of the internet with irreversibility at virtually no cost uh, to any internet connected device in the world is it's sort of as, as magical as the first time you, you know, maybe used internet email or, or the web or whatever. It's, it's just one of those experiences that's really dramatic. Yeah, um, it's, it, it, it's, like we're at the point now where, for example, when we settle trades with our OTC counterparties, uh, our OTC counterparties prefer that we settle trades in USDC rather than using the legacy banking system. Right, right. So, I mean, you know, wh where do you see this going? I mean, is this, um, are we are we moving into a phase where, you know, obviously stablecoins got their start in the sort of digital asset trading markets, just as you've noted, even in, in your own business. Um, you know, are we at a place, are we approaching a tipping point where uh, real world businesses are using these to, you know, pay their suppliers, pay each other, uh, you know, receive payments, um, you know, really starting to become a real payment and settlement medium uh, on the internet? Yeah, so you would have better insight on kind of a granular basis than I would given uh, the nature of Circle's business. Uh, but what I can tell you we see happening at, at, at from our vantage point is, a lot of interest in people uh, making payments faster and better um, in all kinds of instances, um, all, all over the world, commerce, uh, both like B2B as well as B2C. The other thing we've, we've seen that's been really interesting has been uh, just a flight to the USD from citizens all over the world. Uh, and that is such a powerful opportunity for these people to be able to have digital US dollars in a bearer, bearer format. Right. I mean, that, that is profound in and of itself, uh, the, the ability to, to hold a dollar and, and in, in something like a USDC where, you know, it's, it's not commercial bank money, it's not fractional, uh, you know, reserve money, it's, you know, it's backed by, you know, short term US government treasuries, it's sort of a full reserve system is makes it a little bit unique. Um, 
Yeah, it relates, you know, what you just shared relates to one of the themes I wanted to talk a little bit about, which is sort of this broader global financial inclusion. And that's a lot of different things. It's sort of getting more people uh, into the, the realm of money, the economy, uh, get, make it safer for people to exchange value with each other, e even in, in, in a localized way, um, you know, helping individuals participating in global labor markets, um, you know, some of these kinds of, of themes. Um, and then, you know, related, you know, kind of going, what I say is over the top, which is, you know, you're just going over the top of the internet and you're going around weak governments and weak currencies to access something like uh, a digital dollar. Um, you know, where do you see stable coins in all of those dimensions in the next couple of years? Yeah, there's uh, so much opportunity in this space. And I think we're, we're only just starting to scratch the surface. Um, there's now tons of anecdotal stories about people in uh, Venezuela, in Argentina, in um, uh, Turkey, in all kinds of jurisdictions around the world where they're trying to escape their local fiat currencies and they want digital dollars. Um, that demand is for sure today anecdotally already doing doing this. Most of those people don't kind of volunteer their names, but but like we know lots of anecdotes that it's happening, uh, and it's probably happening at a larger scale than most people most people realize. Uh, although it is hard hard to quantify. As we look out ahead, there are some really big catalysts coming that are very clear. Um, the, probably the biggest of those is, is Libra. Uh, Facebook is going to be putting digital dollars on a blockchain. Uh, and they're going to be rolling it out in WhatsApp, in the Facebook Messenger app, and in Facebook proper. Uh, obviously, those apps collectively reach more than 3 billion people. Uh, and so uh, it's, that is going to be a big catalyst. And I think in the wake of that happening, there's going to be tons of opportunities. Uh, it's going to clearly just push this kind of whole stablecoin ecosystem forward. It may be good for Libra, but it's also going to be good for the other companies and the other stablecoins in the space. Uh, simply because you want competition because people will want to experiment and try other things uh and so yeah. that that is by far the kind of largest mega catalyst that we we can see yeah ab absolutely i mean i i think um you know and and there is uh you know sort of the these models which are you know more of these kind of cl closed networks but still using the same fundamental technology and then you know as we talked about earlier you know open permissionless blockchains and the power of that for true peer-to-peer -peer transactions for you know, smart contracts that can intermediate uh, different types of business relationships or, or, or labor relationships, other things. Um, so clearly, there, there's going to be you know multiple significant growth platforms um, you know coming from that as well. But uh, excellent, Kyle. Well, I mean, we could go on for a long time on this theme, um, and I'd love to have you back on the show to explore more. And it was just really great to have you on here today. Hey, Jeremy, it's an honor to be on on the first episode. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, can't wait to see how the show progresses and evolves. And yeah, looking forward to coming back whenever it makes sense. Awesome, Kyle. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Some big themes this week as we explore the issues and ideas driving the money movement. Next week, we're going to be joined by a number of excellent guests where we'll be talking about the big picture of risk, safety, and trust in our financial system. We're going to explore more on the global economic outlook, the risks in our current banking and financial system, and how the Chicago plan from the Great Depression era may fit into this new economic architecture being built on stablecoins and blockchains. We're also going to talk about the fundamental benefits of blockchains for managing risk and security with payments, transactions, contracts, and so forth. 
So until next week, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you. Thank you.